0: Hello there and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship sermon podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz and I am the youth director here at Sardis Fellowship. This week, Pastor Rod Hebel preaches from John chapter 18 on Jesus' arrest in the garden. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Are you the kind of person who likes to take matters into your own hands? You know, like you get, like to get it done, right? Yeah. I think I'm prone to be that kind of person. I wish I could say otherwise. But it's true. I I like to put my hand to something because I think I'm going to be able to fix the problem only to have it backfire. Sometimes get worse, right? Now at this moment, I would usually share an illustration with you, but quite frankly, it's too painful. We do this in our relationship with God as well, you know. Uh, We force Uh, Things uh, to try to kind of like help him out, right? God, you're not quite coming through here for me, or at least not right on time, so I gotta help you out. And our efforts really work against him. They work against his plan. They work against something deeper that he's often trying to teach us, but we're just missing it, right? There are these great verses that I've shared before with you from Isaiah 55. I share them on occasion because they're so meaningful. I find that they are always in the back of my subconscious trying to inform my life and the way in which I make decisions and live. You're probably familiar with these verses as well. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God, okay? Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. (laughs) So what do we conclude from God telling us this? we conclude that his perspective on life is better. His perspective on my life is better, and the plan that he has is better. And I need to align my will with his. This is what really faith is all about, is understanding that I need to trust God with my life that he comes into my life to transform me and change me by the presence of Jesus Christ in me, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because he wants to shape me to walk in obedience with God. Now, I know this can kind of sound exceedingly lofty, that our lives would align with God's will and purpose, and that he would actually be glorified through our lives. Like That sounds kind of like a lofty goal, and right away we can kind of feel like, oh man, I feel like I missed that mark so bad, right? But it is really what following Jesus is about. When he says to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me daily, it's about making the moment by moment decisions to follow Jesus and to say yes to him. And they could be in big ways or small ways. Often they're in small ways, but if we don't do it in the small ways, how would we ever do it when a big, challenging decision comes along? God is good. And his plan is good, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. And often what we bump up against is when something is exceedingly difficult in our lives, we can't see how God's goodness is here in that moment. As we've been tracking with the disciple John, who's been recording for us, or has recorded for us, the account of Jesus' life and his teachings, we're moving closer and closer and closer to what Jesus has said, the moment of glory. His moment of glory would include his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he is now seated and where he now reigns. And we're going to be focusing on understanding uh, or seeing the contrast between how Jesus understood the will of God in his moment of glory compared to that of the disciples. Jesus, as you remember if you were here last week, had just finished praying a prayer Uh, Pastor Tim was teaching us about that last week, and in that prayer, he prayed for two things for his disciples. One, he prayed that they would be protected, that he wouldn't lose any of them. Secondly, he prayed that they would be one, and that they would be united as the Father and the Son were united, so these disciples would be united with the Father, and that, by implication, comes down to us as well. Tim preached a great message, and he left us with a thought. He said, you know what? We are in the world. Make sure you're engaged in the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. But we should be for the world. And if you're not quite sure what all that means, I just invite you to go and watch his message from last Sunday. You can always go to our website. If you're away on a weekend and you don't catch it, um, you can listen to the message by way of the video recording or you can go to the podcast. It's on the same page. If you go to sardisfellowship.com, you'll see right on the front page, it says online service. You click on that. It'll take you to all our, our messages. You can watch all the worship services in the past if you miss one on a certain date, or you can scroll down a little bit more, and it says podcast. And I'm not like, you know, a very techie guy, but it was easy. You just push the option, and boom, there you go. You can hear the sermon. Now, I must forewarn you, that we record these sermons or these services and then release them the next week online. So if you happen to be away and then you go to the online service, you might just be watching the one that you saw the week before. It's a little little bit of a, a fly in the ointment here, so to speak. But you can always listen to the podcast because that is always current. The podcast will have the messages. Tim's message last week was on the prayer of Christ and it was an excellent message. Back to our story. Jesus has prayed for his disciples that they would be united and protected. And then he takes him from Jerusalem out of wherever that scene is in Jerusalem, in that upper room, and he takes him across what's called the Kidron Valley, and he takes him up the Mount of Olives to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's about a five-kilometer walk from Jerusalem. I've tried to give you a bit of help here in understanding what it would look like. Uh, so in this picture over here, you'd have the Jerusalem and the wall there. It's about a 200-foot drop down into this Kidron Valley, up the other side, along the mountain to the Mount of Olives, to this site called the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's the view if you were in the garden, looking back at the Temple Mount, <clears throat> and if you look really closely, you'll see that this comes from BibleWalks.com, right in the middle. How good are your eyes? You can't see that. I shouldn't have told you. You wouldn't have known. This was a familiar place for the disciples. They'd gone there a lot with Jesus. Jesus. Now, John leaves out certain details which always disappoint us when one gospel includes certain things and another one doesn't and that sort of a thing, but don't hear that as a contradiction. There's no contradictions in the gospels. What you're going to find is that each author um, had their agenda of why they were writing, and they chose certain points to include and others to leave out. John leaves out some. He includes others. So we're going to be looking at mostly John's um, account today of the garden scene, but he does leave out one major piece, which is Jesus praying his prayer of agony. And so I'm going to draw on Matthew's gospel as well so we kind of get this complete picture of what's happening here in this garden scene. The only reference that John gives it is, he says, the cup that the Father has for me to drink. So he references the prayer that he's just prayed. So let me read our passage and then we'll take a look at this together. I apologize. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. It's a scary imagery. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, note that, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And then John gives us this little note, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And again, he asked them, thank you, Kevin, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those He gave me. Then Peter, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father in law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people, obviously speaking knowledge beyond what he understood when he made the comment. One thing that is being made clear through this account is that Jesus is in control in this situation. John is really making clear to us who are the readers that Jesus is not a victim here. He is not helpless. He knows everything that is about to happen to him. And we see this here because he goes out, he, he, um, pardon me, he doesn't change his route. He goes to the same place that he always goes to, knowing full well that Judas knows where that place is, Right? So he doesn't change his route. And then he goes out to meet the officials. He could have stayed in hiding, but he doesn't. He goes out to meet them. And then he asks them, who are they looking for, knowing full well that it was him. And then he even makes this demand of them, really, let these ones go, his disciples. And then he offers himself up to the soldiers in order for them to be able to take him away. That's really noteworthy to note that he is not helpless and that he does not have options He is willingly laying down his life, and so he is almost, in a sense, giving permission to them to take him and to fulfill the will of the Father. Jesus had said earlier to his disciples, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Note this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Now, to say that Jesus was in control of the situation isn't in any way to suggest that it was easy for him to do, right? Rather, it's to say that we are to understand something about all that is about to transpire here. We're being let in on a secret. John is letting us in on something that others would miss, He's saying, note something, because Jesus is willingly laying down his life, no one is taking it from him. I think this is important for us to wrestle with and to really grasp because it's at the heart of what the gospel is all about. He was not put to death at the hands of the Jews or the Romans. It wasn't them. It was the will of God to accomplish a purpose. He was doing it for the salvation of all of humanity to bring glory to God through this. And and Jesus had talked like this. He had said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. There's something that is upside down and backwards about this whole understanding of what's about to take place as he goes to the cross. How can it be glory? It's only glory because there's a plan in place and God has something for us that's going to happen because of this plan that will be carried out. And it's the moment of glory because it's at that point of testing that Jesus is getting really, really close to right here in this story. He's getting so close to that moment of testing. Will he stand or not? You see, he could have bowed out of the plan altogether. That was one option. He could have called 10,000 angels to come and rescue him or come to his defense. That was another option. And yet, he didn't. And because he didn't, we begin to see the cross for what it truly means. You know, you've maybe heard over the years... Christians who tried to blame Jews for killing Christ or Messiah, or Caiaphas the high priest that year, or Pilate, or the Roman soldiers. And quite frankly, at the moment that someone thinks like that or says something like that, they are completely missing the point of the gospel. Because it's you and me as much as anyone else who put Jesus on the cross. No one put Jesus on the cross he willingly laid down his life because there was something, something that was happening at a magnitude far greater than what we can picture in the moment of what's happening. He is the one who is giving his life, laying it down of his own accord, as he says. So Jesus takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives. When he had finished praying, Jesus left his disciples left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, they go into a garden. Jesus took them to a well-known place. And it's for that very reason that Judas knew where to go. He knows where he's going to go. The betrayer knows this safe place, this favorite spot that Jesus goes with his disciples. Think about that. The place that was a safe place now becomes a place of betrayal for only a friend can betray a friend. This is an inside job. This is exceedingly shocking for all the other disciples to see Judas coming with these, what, Judas, you're the one? And for Jesus, deeply hurtful. The passage tells us that on the Mount of Olives there was a garden in the garden. They went into it. It It's kind of interesting. maybe it was some kind of a a walled structure inside the garden or inside the olive grove, but they were in somewhere that then he comes out to meet the soldiers. The other gospels tell us clearly in Matthew there that it is called the Garden of Gethsemane, and the name means olive press. Okay, so you're in, you're on the Mount of Olives, you're in an olive grove, and the name of the garden that you're in is called olive press. Now this is really rich symbolism here, Nothing I would have ever picked up on my own except for I read Bible commentaries and they help me out. So I want to pass that on to you today. There's some rich symbolism here. Oil, olive oil, which was made right there on that hillside, okay, was used for anointing priests and kings. Hmm, That's pretty important. The word Messiah means anointed one. The process for making olive oil from these very olives, okay, involved a large stone that would be rolled over top of them. It would go in a circle, crushing the olives, and it would pass over top of them three times, squeezing out all of the oil that was in them. And here we are in a garden where Jesus is going to pray an agonizing prayer three times, being crushed, crushed by the answer, crushed by the fact that the answer is, I have to give my life he will soon be crushed by the cross as the anointed one, just as those olives were crushed to produce the oil so Christ would produce salvation. It's beautiful imagery. Plus, they're in a garden. The Bible talks a lot about gardens, right? Like you start in the beginning, Genesis 1, they're in a garden. And everything is good and it's wonderful until sin enters, right? So you have this garden in the beginning and then a few weeks ago we talked about heaven. I went to Revelation 21, which you can read later on your own. But it talks about this future dwelling place in the presence of God where it says there's a new heaven and a new earth. And it starts to describe this place. And it talks about this water, this river flowing from the throne of God and weaving through the streets of the city and out. And there's trees. And these, this one tree is the tree of life and it bears fruit. And there's leaves for healing. You kind of get this imagery of kind of like a garden. It's like Eden restored. It's paradise lost, which is restored, right? Milton. I haven't read it. I've heard about it. But you know, you have this picture in Scripture that what started in the Garden of Eden will come back again, and God restores all things. But here we are in between. And there's two gardens, really. There's a Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus wrestles with the decision to follow and obey the will of God and the plan of salvation, and then he is crucified beside a garden. John 19, 41. He's crucified beside a garden, and in that garden was a tomb. And when Jesus died, they took him down off the cross and they laid him in that tomb. And what comes to me there is you have the garden in the beginning, you have the garden in the end, but you know what? You have these two gardens that represent that process of redemption. What Jesus is doing to bring about the final reality for all of us who trust in him that we spend eternity with God. We have the first garden, the last garden, but this is the garden where Jesus wrestles with the will of the Father. And then he's buried in the tomb, and he comes back to life again, and he brings the victory. Paradise is restored. So those were two imageries um, that I picked up this week, and I wanted to pass them on because I think it's beautiful. Coming back to our story, it's late at night. The disciples are what? Oh, they're tired. They've been eating. They've been drinking. They're tired. It's late at night. Jesus was not tired. Well, he might have been tired, but there's no way that he was going to think about sleeping because the text tells us that he knows all things and all that was about to happen to him. And he is overcome with sorrow, even to the point of death. And so he takes his three closest friends of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. James and John are the brothers. John is the one writing this account. They are his closest friends. And he takes them apart from the rest of the group because he knows they're probably just going to fall asleep. And he takes them and he says, pray with me. Right? Pray. I'm going to pray. You pray Let's pray together. I need you. I'm overwhelmed to part of sorrow, uh, to the point of death. And I want to read that for us in um, this passage in, in Matthew so that you get that part of the prayer, okay? So join me as we read this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over and, over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken from me, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Do you see those three exclamation points there? It's trying to indicate to us the intensity with which Jesus is saying, "Now's my moment. I have prayed. I know the will of the Father. I must do this. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Game on. Game on. I'm ready. The disciples have been sleeping. It would be hard for us to miss the point of Jesus' prayer in the garden here. Jesus wants to know one thing from his Father. What is it? Is there any other way? Can salvation come from some other means? Father, do I understand this clearly? Could it come through human goodness, a general spirit of love and kindness if we just work at it a little bit harder? Can it come through some other kind of spiritual experience or religious experience or religious system or if we all chant in harmony with the beat of the universe, surely we could all become one and produce salvation, God? Will it come through another person? What's he saying here? Is there any other way? Because Father, if there is, then please remove this cup from me. Don't let me face what I know I'm about to face if I don't have to face it. Yet not as I will, but as you will. We move too quickly through this passage. When Jesus prayed this prayer three times, what do you think he heard from the Father? I don't no for a fact but I think I think he heard crickets I think he heard nothing I think he heard silence because I think in that moment what prayer really is is aligning his will with God's that's what prayer is is aligning our hearts with God's heart I, I can't say that for sure But I think Jesus knew what the plan was. And the silence of the Father was as much an answer as if he had audibly said to him, you know the plan. Jesus was aligning his heart with God's to do the will of the Father. The disciples were sleeping. Jesus comes to them and he rebukes them. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? Notice the emphasis, he asked Peter. Why? Why was he asking Peter this? Probably because just a few hours before when they were having their meal, Peter was the one who tried to so confidently give his allegiance to Jesus, even more so than the rest of the disciples. He said these two statements. Even if all, even if all the rest of the disciples fall away on account of you, I never will. That's one thing he said. And the second thing he said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Can't you keep watch with me for one hour, Peter? Peter, you said you would fight the battle with me. You said that you would be there for me. I could really use the support right now, Peter. What do you think Jesus had in mind when he said, so you will not fall into temptation? Because he said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think he has the fact that, pray so that you know what the will of the Father is. The temptation is to do your own thing. And that's the same dilemma for each and every one of us. I want to do my own thing. God, pray that you won't fall into temptation so that you will do what your Father in heaven wants you to do. Jesus prepared for his battle and his moment of testing by praying, and he was ready. The disciples were not prepared for their moment of testing because they slept. Then the religious leaders and the soldiers, along with Judas, arrived, and Jesus went out to them, and he asked, Who is it you want? And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. What's going on here? There's a couple things I want to point out. One is that when he says, I am he, that is a way of indicating, I'm the one you're looking for. So it's self-identification. The he actually isn't really in there in the Greek, it's just I am, but it's also understood. He is identifying himself. I am he. Who is it you're looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. I am he. It fits, but it's got a double meaning. Clearly it has a double meaning. He is using the name that God uses for himself. When Moses, before the burning bush, was asked by God to go back to the nation of Israel and he says, whom shall I say has sent me? God says, tell them I am has sent you. Meaning I am the self-sufficient one. And Jesus is taking that claim for himself. Here it's clear through John's Gospel and other places, but here it has a double meaning. And I think we have the clue of that because they drew back and fell to the ground. This is just a little bit of a taste of the power and authority and the glory of Jesus Christ that in that moment when he says, I am, they fall to the ground. Why do they fall to the ground? They fall to the ground because they are in the presence of God. They're in the presence of the one who is going to now offer himself. You don't take me. I offer myself to you, and I am the one, therefore let them go. You see, if Jesus is trying to protect his disciples as he's already prayed for them, now is his moment to say, I'm the one you want. Let them go. And they did. Even though Peter had struck that guy's ear, whom John knows, because John was friends with the high priest's family, John knows the name of the servant that Peter struck. Really ironic that he tries, What are you, Peter, what are you doing? You know? And Jesus heals his ear, that's in Luke's gospel. So uh, probably Peter's life was spared on the basis of the fact that Jesus chose to heal the man that he struck the ear. He protected his disciples. We get to the part that is, I think, the central part. Jesus fulfilled his own words when he prayed to the Father to protect them. Put your sword away, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is what I actually titled our sermon today. Put your sword away. Of the whole passage, that's where I landed in my heart. Because I felt like, are we not prone to drawing the sword? Are we not prone to taking matters into our own hands to try to help God out? And here's Jesus willingly laying him. His life down willingly giving himself over. And now you have Peter trying to protect them. And Jesus is like, what are you doing, Peter? Put your sword away. We are as misinformed as Peter at certain points. And we're not trusting God when we're facing something. And so we intervene in the situation. We draw our own version of the sword. And Peter drew it because he didn't trust Jesus. We do the same thing. We end up using the wrong weapon to fight the wrong battle. Have you thought about that? Peter is trying to fight a spiritual battle with a physical weapon. But you can't do that. You can't defeat the armies of God by drawing a physical sword. But you could by prayer. Peter failed to do that. 2 Corinthians gives us a little insight into this. The Apostle Paul speaking here. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does, drawing the sword. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I don't know if it's landing for you how it did for me, but when I think about Jesus saying, I will drink the cup the Father has given me, and I think about Peter drawing the sword, and I think about this passage here, I look at the weapons we have to fight against the spiritual battles we are in, And we take captive every thought and make it submissive to Christ. And when we do that, that's when God has the victory in our lives. That's when God is going to do something greater in and through us, is when we're living that out. The weapons of our warfare are not of this world. But I have to be honest, this is a struggle for me, as I'm sure it is for you. I want to solve my own problems, and I want to fight my own battles my way. But I'm as short-sighted as Peter in these things. Um... We do things in our human strength, and we think it accomplishes something when it really accomplishes little or nothing in the spiritual realm at all, right? I have a story I want to tell. Um, My niece's husband told me this story about his mom, and it kind of captures her heart for prayer. Um, One day, he says that they had a stovetop fire in the kitchen, and as soon as the thing broke out of fire, she burst into prayer. (laughs) God, we got a fire, put it out. <laughs> you know? He's like, really? Should we go for the fire extinguisher or a towel or something like that? And while well, we might look at that and think, well, that's a bit of a funny reaction, here's the beautiful thing. She instinctively went to God because that was a well-worn pattern in her mind as to how you deal with problems in life. I love it. I love it because I so rarely do that. I intuitively, instinctively want to do something that I can do to fix it, to deal with it, to change it and whatnot, but I haven't taken it to God. And I'm not saying there's not a place for us to play in this. It's just where do we go to first? Do we draw the sword first or do we go to prayer? Do we seek God for his answer in this situation or do we just try to do it in our own strength? And we see this so easily in Peter and this story here, but do we see it in our own lives? Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus was ready to drink that cup. What is our cup? What is your cup that is the will of the Father for you? And and I don't take this lightly because I know some of you have exceedingly difficult, challenging situations. I'm not the one giving you God's word today. This is God's word from God to you as much as it is to God to me. What is your cup to drink that you might be instead pulling the sword to try to deal with. We all have something. And as I said earlier, I think for all of us, the test comes in the little things in life so that when the big moment comes, we will know what to do. We will know to take it to God. What is your sword and what is your cup that God is speaking to you about today? Can we resolve in our hearts to accept the will of God in our lives? I'll close with the verses I opened with. For my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thought thoughts than your thoughts Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship sermon podcast if you'd like to learn more about our church please check out sardisfellowship.com have a great day and god bless